Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, October 24th, 2021. And guess what? Next week, Polylog is on Halloween. The Polylog first, a spooky Polylog. A spooktacular Polylog. Polylog. We're going to work on the name a bit. We're, we're workshopping that stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but before then, we're going to talk about now. So, Naomi, l- why don't you tell me what shows you looked at today? Sure. So I looked at Meet the Press, which was hosted by Andrea Mitchell. Apparently, Chuck Todd got our sly little comments that he never takes vacation. And he took this Sunday off. Great. Good for him. And then we, we, I, I looked at... Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by Chris Wallace. I look today at Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan hosting this week with George Stephanopoulos hosting and State of the Union with Jake Tapper hosting. What was your quality or questionable moment today? So my quality moment is honesty. It's it's the best policy. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's I mean, barely ever heard. <laughs> but, you know, it's mostly what I need from you now. <laughs> Now you're just quoting Billy Joel. Yes. But, <laughs> but I just really appreciate answers that focus on people being honest. But more than that, I really appreciate little asides and comments by the hosts themselves that are often revealing. It's kind of my favorite little unplanned comments that we see on the shows. And today that happened when Representative Ro Khanna, he's a Democratic congressman from California, spoke with Chris Wallace and they were kind of wrapping up the interview. Representative Khanna is a progressive. He is, you know, one of the progressives in the House that is kind of really pushing for an, you know, ambitious human infrastructure plan. And Chris Wallace just, you know, asked him how he felt about Senators Manchin and Cinema, who are really stalling this effort. How frustrated are you with Senators Manchin and Cinema? Chris, I mentioned uh, earlier, Senator Manchin has been a straight shooter. Uh, you know exactly where he stands. I disagree with areas, but I respect that. My concern with Senator Sinema is, why are the rules different for her? Why doesn't she go on shows like yours? Why doesn't she explain herself? If she's shifted her position on Trump tax cuts, explain it. I guess I've never seen a politician, including, frankly, the former President Trump, who just totally ducks answering questions of the media or constituents. And that's my frustration with her. She's not clear about what she believes. Well, I got to tell you, I'm a little frustrated. We've been trying to get her on the air. Uh, She won't even meet with us in private. Congressman Khanna, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Wow. Lots of honesty coming here. Lots of honesty. And, you know, I'm going to be talking about Senator Sinema quite a bit today. This was actually like the second or third comment about Senator Sinema that came up in this specific interview. But I thought this was really telling that, you know, it's not just people in her party. It's the news media themselves. And I wish more news organizations were this forth 
coming about trying to get people to talk, you know, on the air, on record with them about legislative priorities that they are a key player in. And, you know, I have been so frustrated that so much attention is on Joe Manchin. But you know what? Joe Manchin goes on the shows. He loves being interviewed. He loves the attention and he eats it up and he gives a lot of interviews. And so, yeah, journalists talk about Joe Manchin a lot. But I wish they were more honest about how much cinema it just does not participate in public democracy and public journalism. Well, you know what we could always do if we really want to know what cinema thinks is ask Meghan McCain. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they're like best friends. That's what Chuck Todd did a few weeks ago. Exactly. It didn't lead to any insight. Negative insight. Brendan, did you have a quality or questionable that came up? Yes, I have a quality moment. And this moment is also a moment of honesty that I wanted to highlight. Look at us so that honest. I appreciated. So this stood out to me, particularly as I heard some of your complaints, although we haven't really shared a lot about what we're talking about today, but I did hear some of your complaints about people maybe not necessarily answering questions that they were asked. Well, this is Congressman Benny Thompson, Congressman, Democratic Congressman, I should say, from the state of Mississippi, chair of the Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. That's a mouthful. But he was asked on Face the Nation about what he feels regarding President Biden's infrastructure deal, his big human infrastructure package, and the fact that a number of things are being boiled down and reduced from the original progressive agenda. I want to quickly ask you, since you are a progressive Democrat, what is your view? Are you disappointed that President Biden uh, had to give up tuition-free community college and cut paid leave from 12 down to four weeks' time? Well, you know, I'm a realist in the process of making legislation. Uh, It's the art of compromise. Uh, Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But it's the ultimate product. Uh, at the end. Uh, I know what we have at the end is good for America. And uh, if we don't get everything in this package, uh, we'll have another opportunity. So one might say, well, a more honest answer would be, yes, I am disappointed. But I think this is the deeper answer, which is being a realist in this job, in this place, you're going to get some things you want, you're going to get some things you don't want. I just felt like overall, He directly answered the questions. There was no dodging of the questions. And he was very measured, but direct. And I appreciated that. And really no spin. I didn't feel like there was a ton of spin on this. So it's a voice that we don't often hear on the Sunday shows, but I really appreciated it. I mean, yay for maturity, I guess. I I wish people would talk a little bit more about their outrage, because that can also be very honest and illuminating. But... I hear what you're saying. I guess it's valuable to be measured and also realist, realistic about what is possible. It reminds me of Jen Psaki's comment this week where she said, you know, negotiation is not a dirty word and the opposite of not compromising is getting zero and that's not acceptable. Right. Or doing it all behind closed doors where no one gets to see it, as we talked about last week. It's like, is that what we want? Maybe that's what some partisans want, but I would hope it's not what journalists want journalists want to see what's going on otherwise they will be as chris wallace said in your clip frustrated speaking of this bill naomi i feel like is that what you're talking about today yeah so i am specifically talking about some new recent developments around the pay fors for the bill specifically 
Senator Kirsten Sinema doesn't really want to raise taxes because she's a great Democrat and <laughs> refuses to raise taxes for Americans earning more than 400000 or corporations, for that matter. Well, we know Democrats are all about protecting corporations yeah, from taxation. It, yeah, just really got to protect Amazon all the way. So there's a new proposal of a wealth tax. And so I really wanted to talk about how the shows talked about the wealth tax, explained the wealth tax. It's a very new development, so there's not a ton, a ton to say yet. But in these early kind of framing, I thought it was interesting to look at that piece. What are you talking about? Well, I'm actually focusing more on how a certain show covered things, in particular this week, and looking at some, looking kind of critically at that, and then comparing that to some of the other shows. So uh, mine's a little more meta. I guess you could say, are more specific to the journalist and the show and not to the topic. So why don't we focus on your topical topic first? What do you say? That sounds great. So let's start with how Meet the Press explained the wealth tax. Again, Meet the Press was hosted by Andrea Mitchell. This is how she kind of switches from one segment to the next, introducing Senator Angus And turning now to two big issues in Washington. On President Biden's social spending plan, Democrats are now reportedly nearing agreement on a billionaire's tax rather than raising rates on people making north of $400,000 a year because of opposition by Senator Kirsten Sinema. And because Republicans denied any debate at all on voting rights, the president says he may now be willing to overhaul the filibuster. One senator who is moving in the same direction on that score is independent Senator Angus King of Maine. And Senator King is here with us. Welcome back to Meet the Press. Okay, so other than the fact that Senator Sinema doesn't really want to raise taxes, we don't hear anything else in that intro. Nothing about the wealth tax, about, you know, who exactly might be impacted by this new proposed tax. Well, she did say people who make over a billion dollars. Right. I guess I'll be comparing it later to Chris Wallace, which was actually he gave more, <laughs> more, more, more details on that. But I mean, this is all she offers. Right. And then take a listen to the question itself when it comes up in this same interview with Senator Angus King. He's an independent senator from the state of Maine. Let's talk about the so-called reconciliation, the social spending bills. And so much focus has been on the trillions of dollars that are being spent and not on what is and what is being cut and not on what is still in there. But how do you feel right now, for instance, about the billionaire's tax that apparently is one of the things that's being considered to get around Senator Sinema's op- opposition to raising rates on the wealthy? Well, you know, I, I, number one, I, I think you're right. I think one of the mistakes in this has been all the attention has been on what the number is, 3.5 billion, 2.8, 2.2, whatever it is, rather than what's in the bill. Why are we doing this? And, you know, I think back, Andrea, to the 50s, the two most important uh, federal policies of the 50s that propelled us into the prosperity of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, there were two. One was the interstate highway system, and the other was the GI Bill. I talked to a guy just the other day, 96 years old, enlisted in the, in the Navy during World War II. The GI Bill changed his life. He didn't even finish high school when he enlisted. He came back, finished high school, went to college. And so really what we're talking about is a GI Bill for the 21st century. Let me ask you about Senator Joe Manchin and climate, because 
Right now, the, the climate provision's really out of the bill. The president's going to try to do things by executive order, we're told, but that can always be overturned, challenged in the courts. Uh, so you've lost the climate provisions. And Senator Manchin is talking about, even at one point this week, becoming an independent like you. How do you feel about Senator Manchin becoming an independent, still voting with Democrats, and losing so much of climate, which is so important to Mainers? Now, all of this is trash. Just a garbage question, a garbage answer, and a garbage follow-up. This frustrates me to no end. Because if you watched Meet the Press to try to understand this new development about the wealth tax for this plan that Democrats are really committed to making happen in some capacity, you learn nothing. You learn nothing today. And the question itself by Andrea Mitchell, okay, fine. She's she's like so much attention has been on what's not happening in the bill. She doesn't spend the the, the rest of her interview talking about some of those programs. She, she like literally does. Exactly. The, it's so bizarre. She doesn't do that. Like, it's not like she but, gets to it later. She doesn't, she doesn't talk about what would actually be happening in the climate parts of the bill. You know, the reduction well, of paid family leave, that the fact they took out community call. Like, she doesn't even talk about it. So like, okay, you're doing the thing that like people are mad about. Right. That you're talking about. She introduces her question like that's what her question's going to be, but it's not. It's not at all. <laughs> So then she gets to her question about, you know, how does he feel about the billionaire tax? And Senator Angus King does not acknowledge that question at all. And he's able to do that because she had such a trash opening for her question. He was able to completely ignore the question and just talk about how we need to invest just like we did with the GI Bill. And there's, you know, a 96-year-old World War II vet who was really grateful for the GI Bill. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Absolutely zero. So if you wanted to convince somebody of this, like, good job, you did nothing. So stupid. It's so stupid. And then her follow-up is nothing, just nothing. She just moves on to climate change, but not really about climate change, about Manchin becoming an independent. It's so bad. Every sentence. It's it's insanity, actually. I mean, you know what this reminds me of? There was a moment in high school and I, we had to write like a six paragraph essay on something or a five paragraph essay. I don't know what it was. It was maybe let's say it was a five paragraph essay, I don't right? Think, yeah, I don't think that's how to say and, a six paragraph. Yeah, but but yeah. it was like a five paragraph essay, which we all know the standards of the five paragraph which essay. Which is also stupid. So I wrote, okay. this, I wrote this piece and I turned it in and I thought it was good. And I got it back and I got a really good grade on it. And then I looked back over it and I I looked a little closer and I realized that my paragraph two and my paragraph three were the same paragraph. Like I had accidentally copied and pasted the second paragraph. So the second paragraph was in twice. (laughs) So my five paragraph essay was actually a four paragraph essay. (laughs) And, and, and the second paragraph just was, and I looked at, the, and it was, you know, I just got like a hundred on, I got a great grade on it. And I was like, did the teacher even look at this? Like, oh what God. is going on? And that's what this reminds me oh. of. Like, it reminds me of somebody accidentally copied and pasted different answers together into different things. And suddenly we're watching it as an audience. And it's like, does anyone realize that <laughs> these things don't line up? This Nothing doesn't make any makes sense. sense. Nothing. It's all scrambled up. Which teacher was this? Well, I don't want to say, because, you know, I don't want to call people out. We're not going to say his name, but let me just say, everyone loved him, and I did not, so. I didn't get the sense that everyone loved him. Everyone thought he was so smart and brilliant. Anyway, any of our high school listeners know how I feel about this person, but it's fine. (laughs) Overrated. (laughs) 
is my general sentiment. I really enjoyed the film class I took in there. <laughs> You're giving it away. So let's move on to Fox News Sunday, which spent a significant part of the show talking about this new wealth tax. Of course, this is Fox News Sunday. It's Fox News, which is a conservative network. So, you know, they're very concerned about taxes all the time. Fine. I'm but at least they're putting some time and attention to it. Right. So it came up in the interview, as I mentioned, with Representative Ro Khanna. He's a Democratic congressman from California. He's one of the progressives who's fighting really hard for a really big bill. I just thought the questions themselves by Chris Wallace were so much more substantial. Now, the big development this week has not been on the spending side, it's been on the taxing side, the pay-for side, and the sudden shift away from the way the Democrats have been talking for months, if not years, on how they would pay for this big package. Uh, for months, the president has been clear about how he wants to do it. Take a look at him. It's time for corporate America, and the wealthiest 1% of Americans have just begun to pay their fair share. Just their fair share. But now, because Kirsten Sinema says that she opposes raising rates on wealthy Americans, those making more than $400,000, and on corporations, there is suddenly talk of a wealth tax on about 700, 700 billionaires. Are you willing to vote for that without any real testing or vetting? I do think a wealth tax makes sense, Chris. And uh, as I mentioned, I think last time I was on, it would be paid largely by people in my district. Silicon Valley billionaires, our wealth has gone up 40% during the pandemic, $11 trillion of market cap in our area. They can afford to pay a wealth tax. But I guess my question for Senator Sinema is, she voted against the Trump tax cuts, and I just don't understand why she's not willing then to raise some of the rates back to what they were before the bill she voted against was. And she hasn't explained it to anyone. Excellent point there by Representative Khanna. Yeah, excellent point. And I thought this question was thorough. I mean, sometimes big questions, when they're not done well, they include a lot of extra details that then people can use as a gateway to not answer the question. But that's not what Chris Wallace does here. He has kind of a long, you know, build up to his question to make sure that one, like I know exactly what I'm talking about. I want to make sure you are my interviewee knows what I'm talking about and my viewer to know what I'm talking about. And I thought even the usage of the clip itself was interesting because it's exactly the opposite of what the Democrats are doing right now. Like, it's just a very strong question, which then, you know, Representative Khan, I think, does a good job of saying, like, you know, I'm for this, but this isn't ideal. Yeah. I mean, we've said it before, but and I think you hinted at it or you mentioned it in the intro of this section here that Fox News Sunday does a better job of covering issues of taxes than any of the other shows. I think you really can say that it's related to the fact that those who lean a little more to the right or conservative thinking think more deeply about the issues of taxation. Exactly. It's a point of expanded discussion if there's any type of tax legislation. And the immediate follow-up is kind of giving an example of what would be happening with this wealth tax, as opposed to raising the corporate tax rate. So so let's be clear here, because you say, well, if the president gives you his word, that's good enough. If the president's word is we're not going to raise rates on people making more than four hundred thousand dollars a year, we're not going to raise the average corporate tax rate, let's say from twenty one percent to twenty five percent. Instead, we're going to have this billionaire's tax. 
And just to explain it, instead of uh, paying some kind of an income tax, if a billionaire uh, has has assets and hasn't sold any of them, you're still going to pay a capital gains on what the the increase has been in the value of the assets, which is a little easier when it stocks gets pretty hard if it's real estate or a fancy painting. If he says that it's going to be the billionaire's tax, but not raising rates on individuals or corporations, do you vote for that or against it? I would vote for it. I mean, the billionaire's tax is actually a wealth tax. It's more progressive, arguably. It's what Senator Warren ran on. But the billionaire's tax, I don't think, will be enough. It would have to be coupled with this minimum tax, which the president has talked about, that there are about 50 corporations that are paying 0% in taxes, and they would have to pay at least 7% in tax. So Amazon would have to pay 7%. If you had both of those and you raised the revenue, uh, I would vote for it. Even though you're not going to raise rates on corporations and on the wealthy as opposed to the super wealthy. Well, I, I would prefer that we raise the corporate tax rates. But if we can raise the revenue in these two other ways, I'm not going to vote against the bill. So I think this exchange is really interesting because one, I mean, Chris Wallace is inherently skeptical here. Right. Of course. But I think it's interesting the way he gives an example of the fact that billionaires would have to pay for a capital gains tax on any assets. And then it's different than, you know, a straight up income tax. And I think Representative Khanna is saying, like, this isn't ideal. It is, you know, fairly progressive, but we would have to couple this with something else because it wouldn't be enough. And these are just two guys who know what they're talking about. They're kind of coming at it from different ends. But like, I, no one is outright dismissive of the other. And that alone is pretty refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Wallace gets in in his question to a description of what the mechanism really is. I think what's kind of missing, and maybe it was in some of these other parts, and I haven't seen it, you know, I'm just seeing these clips. But my understanding of the wealth tax, or at least the argument that people have for it, is that the wealth of billionaires increases over time based on their investments, and the value of their holdings of what they hold and not as a result of actual work. You know, right. they're not actually working. Right. But it's... work gets taxed by the government and this other increase in wealth doesn't get taxed right. even though it was less work because literally it's not work. It's, re- it's investments. Right. Literally. Exactly. Right. Like we don't tax investments in the same way we tax work, but there are a lot of people just making a ton of money just from those investments. Right. And they're, it should be easier for them to pay because they're, they've got a lot more money. Right. Versus people who are, people who are working, working have way less money. Yeah. And, and are yet they're taxed, taxed at a higher rate. Right. Yeah. So it's not just that, oh, these people have a lot of money. Let's take it. It's more like they're not really being taxed in the same way that regular workers are. And I feel like a like lot the of the cumulative tax rate. Right. For wealthy people. Yes. It's not representative of what the cumulative tax rate for working class people are. Right. It's like we've heard Warren Buffett say time and time again that he gets taxed more than like his secretary. Right. And that that's screwed up. Right. And that's, I feel like that's kind of missing in this conversation. So much of this conversation that I've heard is like, oh, well, these billionaires have a lot of money, so let's let's get their money. Right. And I mean, I'm not saying this was like comprehensive by any means. Like compared to the joke that was on Meet the Press, it felt more substantial. But nobody did a really good job about explaining where this came from, how Senator Warren feels about it, who made such a big deal about the wealth tax. What was the original vision for the wealth tax? You know, 
people who are pushing for this, how did they think it was going to be used? How did they feel about it being used potentially for this bill? Like there was none of that. And like I said, it's a very new development. It's supposed to be <laughs> figured out in the bill by the end of the week. So who knows what next week's conversation will look like. But this is where I think framing is so important, yeah. right? Because it's a new emerging topic and the way you explain it, the way you pose questions, the way you demand explanations from people who are working on it, like all of that matters. Like I'm not saying, you know, Meet the Press and Fox News Sunday should have had all of these components figured out in their show, but you should be striving towards a robust explanation and dialogue around it. Exactly. Exactly. Sit down and say, okay, what's the basics of this topic? That we need to incorporate. How can we make sure we incorporate it either as a question, either as an introduction, either as a clip, either as an expert interview? Yeah. I mean, oh my God. Even, of course, an expert interview, that would have been really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. So just super frustrating. It's frustrating because we didn't get that. And it's frustrating because... Like, the more I think about it, like, Fox News Sunday didn't give us enough. But, like, I was so relieved with it, just with that, because Meet the Press was so bad. And typically, Meet the Press is the show that we praise for good explanations. Yeah, and I will say, I think, I think, I'm not sure, obviously, it's just pure conjecture. You know, the fact that Chuck Todd was out, they had, like, both a preview interview with Gavin Newsom that Chuck Todd recently did this week and a preview segment on critical race theory. And like, it felt like two commercials within the show. And, you know, I get that sometimes that happens, but they were so brief that I felt like if Chuck Todd was there, they probably would have had like one preview segment and explain something else. So, I mean, I don't know, but. But the reality is we rate the show and not just the host. Not the host, totally. Right. And And that's fair. And that's why I feel like, and Andrew Mitchell is like a boss at her job. It's not like she doesn't know how to do this. Yeah. And I just want to say when, you know, the conversation about a new wealth tax is then happening on only Fox News Sunday, you have comments like what we heard on the panel from Brett Baer. You know, he's a Fox News commentator, host, you know, pundit. And it was a very cynical look into the wealth tax, which I mean, I'm not surprised by. Bear's comments go straight to questioning the constitutionality or the fairness or, you know, the viability of of the tax to begin with. I don't know. Kind of like we just mentioned, it wasn't explaining what this tax would be doing, but so much like, why do we have to do this? Which is Fox News. But this is what happens when it's only happening on Fox News. We should point out, Brett, that that Ro Khanna is a progressive. So the idea of a wealth tax that was proposed in the last campaign by Elizabeth Warren, he's pretty uh, satisfied with. Unfortunately, as we said, uh, Senator Warner, who's a member of the Senate Finance Committee, which is the tax writing committee, and much more moderate, uh, is, has not favored this idea at all. And I guess I'm just astonished at the idea that after months and months of, uh, you could say years, of moderates or centrists like Joe Biden talking about raise rates on people making more than $500,000 a year, corporations going up from 21% to 25 or 26%. Suddenly, all of that seems to be out the window. And we're talking about a tax on 700 billionaires that's never been tried, not only in the U.S., but the best we could see 
has never been tried anywhere. Or the constitutionality of it, and there will be challenges to it. Listen, this is like a giant game of Jenga, legislative Jenga. You pull out one block, and you've got to pull out another block, and suddenly the whole thing could tumble. I'm told there were a long way from this all coming together. So not a, <laughs> a ton of support, obviously, just a lot of skepticism. But I, I'd be interested in exploring a little bit more deeply kind of what Chris Wallace is saying around Democrats have fought so hard for raising corporate tax rates and the idea that they're willing to let go of that so quickly and pivot to a wealth tax to pass this is telling in and of itself in terms of where power sits in the Senate and that they have allowed themselves to get here. And I don't know, maybe we'll have a, a piece in the Atlantic this week that explores that, but it's moving so fast that like there isn't even enough room to to kind of acknowledge how bizarre that is. I do I do have to say I like Brett Baer's analogy here about a legislative game of Jenga because that is what we've seen over the last few months that you know proposals come up and then oh one person doesn't like it so let's r- remove it but then uh oh is it going to fall over well w- which direction is it going to fall and what can we plug the hole with it's kind of crazy it's totally bizarre yeah which gets me the sense that like so many of these topics when they're badly explained makes me feel like that's purposeful because they worry that if they say too much they're going to you know suddenly cinema's going to change her mind and now she's not for the wealth tax because she didn't like this one thing about it and we're only seeing like it's like looking at an iceberg you know we're only seeing the little tip of it we don't know what all the machinations are going on underneath yeah, I think that's fair. Brendan, I think we're going to calm down and talk about this week, right? Ha, ha, ha. No. So this week today felt like a pretty much completely useless show. I was just floored at various moments by how useless the show felt. There was a lot of huffing, I should say, yeah. while Brendan followed along to this week. Just a lot, a lot of huffing coming from his side of the room. I want to, what I want to do in this episode, in this segment, is what I'm going to do is we're going to look at this week and a few different examples from this week, and then we're going to look at some positive examples. We're going to talk about what this week did wrong. But overall, the general thrust of this segment is going to point out that where this week went wrong wasn't in one question, wasn't in one guest who was invited on. You know, we talk sometimes about those pitfalls or mistakes or missed opportunities. No, no, no. This is about a strategic choice by this week about what it chose to cover and what, by its choices, it revealed about its values, what it thinks its role is, and the purpose of the show. And I think those values are completely, completely wrong for a Sunday show and irrelevant for our time. I mean, for months, if not years recently, we've been, well, ever since COVID, we've been talking about how this week has not really stepped up in the way other shows have. Today's episode is a perfect encapsulation of that and why if anyone asked me what show, if they had could only watch one of the Sunday shows, this week would not be, you know, would not be that one. Let's begin by taking a look at one of the packages that introduced the show. This is a reporter's package, something the reporter put together before any of the interviews are played on the show. Right at the start, we get this package by Jonathan Carl filing from Virginia, talking about the governor's race there. And this is part of why he said it was important to cover. 
This race is about more than just Virginia. It's a key test of the current president's agenda, the shadow cast by the former president, and the first major indication of what lies ahead for the midterm elections. From Joe Biden to Barack Obama, who campaigned for McAuliffe in Richmond yesterday, McAuliffe has tapped the biggest names in the Democratic Party to give his campaign some much-needed energy. There's two things to glean from this. Number one is that the show is going to be talking a lot about the Virginia governor's race. Okay? The second point is that the show is not going to be a lot about the Virginia governor's race as it relates to Virginia, but as it relates to Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, and the Democratic Party. In fact, if you were watching this show, you would actually learn very little about Terry McAuliffe and a name that we didn't hear in this clip, his opponent, the Republican who is trying to run for governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin. And this just drives me absolutely crazy because what the hell are you talking about? Like Virginia is a test of the president's agenda? The, no, Virginia is about Virginia. It's about these two governors who are running. And it's certainly not about the midterm elections, which are a year away. Hey, remember when everyone was talking about the first impeachment of Donald Trump and how it was going to relate to the presidential election? And there were people saying, oh, this is going to be a really big deal in the presidential election. And then other people were like, no, no one's going to remember that by the time of the presidential election. And also other things will have happened by then, i.e. COVID. COVID happened between that first impeachment and the actual presidential election. And God knows what's going to happen before the midterms. We should know this by now. The news changes all the time. And the idea that like people voting in Virginia in this special, in this governor's election, are going to somehow be the same people with the same thought processes voting an entire year later is complete garbage. So I just, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, Brendan. I will just say that I also heard the same BS on Meet the Press and Fox News Sunday. So I, it's just really frustrating that like the grandizing that they make over this governor race and making like acting like as we all like the entire nation needs to care about the governor's race in Virginia. Yeah, but but okay, so a few things about that. First of all, it's really easy for reporters to report on the oh governor's my gosh, race. Absolutely. Because they can it's this right is breaking there. news. I gotta cross the river. Right. It's Meanwhile, right across the river. Literally Chuck Todd said in an interview with Gavin Newsom this week, it's like California. It's like so far. Can Americans really relate? Is it like Oh, I saw that. And then and I, saw, like, I saw someone respond that the vice president is from California, the speaker of the house is from California, the guy who could be the next speaker of the house is from California, and... You know, the fifth largest economy, yeah. major tech. <laughs> okay, cool, 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 cool. But yeah, go, go, cross that river and talk about Virginia, sure. But that's the thing. They're not even really talking about Virginia. They're only talking about it through the lens of... What it has very little relevance to national politics. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And luckily, there were people on this week to point that out. Jane Coaston was on. She's the host of the New York Times podcast, The Argument. And she poured really cold water on this theory. I just keep thinking back to previous gubernatorial elections in Virginia, where it was going to be monuments who were going to swing this election. And now we're hearing that the new thing is, you know, the trouble that 
starts with a capital T and that rhymes with P and somehow that stands for critical race theory. <laughs> like we are in this moment where I, I think I looked back at some of the polling numbers and like the polling in Virginia has actually been remarkably steady. The lead for McAuliffe and on August 31st was about 2.8 percent. On October 15th, it was 2.9 percent. I think it's a pretty steady race. And I think that one of the challenges we have is that we're going to want to use this race as a bellwether for the nation. Not every state is like Virginia, where you have a northern Virginia area that is incredibly diverse and very different from other parts of the state, Blacksburg, Virginia Beach, are going to look a little bit different politically. But I, I do think that there's a sense here where we, we see Republicans that are just going to keep trying something. But if, I mean, Ed Gillespie, of course, lost his, right. his race. But if, if this state, which had been trending blue for the last several elections, actually goes Republican, that is a signal, isn't it? I mean, I think it's a signal of what this means for Virginia and especially how to win a race in Virginia. But as we've seen time and time again, what wins in Virginia or what wins in Texas or what wins in California might not necessarily work outside of those areas. I think the nationalization of politics does not mean that state politics doesn't still matter. All very apt. Yes. Yeah, this was excellent and actually brought some data to bear. Where she's like, look, on August 31st, the polling was 2.8% difference. On October 19th, 2.9% difference. Like, you're trying to say, oh, well, it's because Barack Obama is joining in campaigning. And then this is happening. And that is happening. And things are in flux. But no, that's not the case. It just isn't. And I would love to see, I would love to see some data talking about whether you can really predict things based on races that occur years apart from each other years apart. I really don't think that you can. So that drove me crazy, and the amount of time they spent on it drove me crazy. But then I want to talk a little bit about where else the show went off the rails. And it's not surprising, but it is asking completely partisan actors completely predictable questions. Here is a discussion that George Stephanopoulos brought to the panel as it relates to Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Healthy Democrats. Let me bring that to Chris. If the Democrats do get this done, is that enough to start to bring Biden back? No, it's not, George, because when people start to figure out the specifics of all this, despite Donna's color-coded form over there, um, what they're going to see is they're going to see red. Um, This is not what the majority of the American people want. (laughs) So there are a number of things that I really don't like about this question. First of all, who the question is to, but also the fact that he's asking somebody to predict the political outcome for something that hasn't happened yet. And what does that mean? Enough to bring Biden back, bring Biden back how? And also, this is a a either or question. It either does or it doesn't. It's a yes or no question, which doesn't lead to lots of thoughtful discussion. And yet, and yet, George was so proud of his question that he decided to use it again on the same panel. No. (laughs) Keep it going. Jane, take the question I just gave to Chris. I mean, I think that... For one thing, it's interesting because the American people voted for Joe Biden and Joe Biden talked a lot about infrastructure during the campaign. And I think that what this deal means, it's interesting because voters are complicated. I think that that's something that we always forget. So these are two answers to a question that are completely valid because... We, we don't have any data to, to judge them on. They're all predictions, right? They're all just like, well, the American people are going to do this. Well, they're going to do that. You ask me what they're going to do. I'm going to tell you what I think they're going to do. But there's no value for the viewer. What is the value to this? You're speculating on something that no one can have any information on because we can't see the future. 
And I'm bringing all this stuff up because you might say, well, you know, it's like a sports cast, you know, and you're just talking about the team and you're just kind of like, oh, well, what's going to happen if they if they win? Will they get out of this and will they do that? And you're asking experts and you're just kind of chatting about it. But again, that might be fun to listen to if you follow the sports team, but it really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. What means something is how the team actually plays. And what you say there is not going to change that one way or another. And the other reason that it drives me crazy is there's only so much time you have on a Sunday show and talking about this stuff, which means nothing, means you're not talking about other things that matter, okay? So later on, after this discussion of the governor race in Virginia, which barely mentioned the governors of Virginia or the, the candidates, after the panel discussing this topic... Then they moved on to an issue that mattered, which was an interview with Anthony Fauci, which included a single critical question that was only asked because there was friction there with Ron Paul, uh, with Rand Paul, I should say, because apparently this week can't ask tough questions or bring up a topic unless someone else in politics is already talking about it. And then they moved on to a segment about China and Taiwan with two subject matter experts. I was like, yes, finally. This is something meaty right at the end, but it's finally here, which begins inexplicably with this quote by Joe Biden coming out of commercial, which we have no context for, but just randomly starts playing as the commercial ends. Here is the full intro as it leads into the first question. You know, you hear people saying Biden wants to start a new Cold War with China. I don't want a Cold War with China. I just want to make China understand that we are not going to step back. We are not going to change any of our views. So are you saying that that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment to do that. There's President Biden on Thursday vowing to defend Taiwan as tensions mount between the United States and China. We discuss that now with Steve Gannon, a veteran of the Pentagon and State Departments, and Bonnie Glazer, director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund. Bonnie, let me begin with you. President Biden's team, including the defense secretary, walked back that comment, saying that the United States policy of not explicitly saying we would defend Taiwan, which is known as strategic ambiguity, has not changed. But President Biden said something very similar to me back in August, in our August interview. Is there more going on here than meets the eye? Well, I think that President Biden personally feels quite strongly about uh, avoiding a Chinese attack on Taiwan. And it is quite interesting that he keeps saying that he would come to Taiwan's defense. So this came absolutely out of nowhere. There is no description of China's relationship with Taiwan, China's history with Taiwan, the U.S.'s relationship With Taiwan, the rising tensions that are just mentioned as rising tensions mounting between the U.S. and China, just nothing, no context whatsoever. And then George zooms into things such as strategic ambiguity, and we're we're suddenly talking about attacks. And it's like, what is going on here? Where is this coming from? Nothing. It's unbelievable how badly this conversation is set up well and and the lack of context makes it seem as if we're like on the brink of war like yes north korea yeah and the other thing that that gets me is the only like the impetus for this conversation seems to be the clip that they didn't actually introduce that he just kind of like explained after they randomly started playing it but 
the whole conversation, obviously, this is about the U.S.'s relationship with China and with Taiwan and our military presence. But all almost all the questions are actually about like what Biden said, what the administration is doing. It's like always, always on, on this week through the lens of like the big leader, you know, which is when Biden's president, it's Biden. When Trump is president, it's Trump. It's almost like they see themselves as writing the table of contents of Joe Biden's biography. It's always through the eyes of Joe Biden. Everything, right? With the Virginia governor's race, oh, that was about Joe Biden. You know, the, the infrastructure deal, well, that's, that's all about Joe Biden and whether Biden is up or down. You know, is it enough to bring Biden back? And now this is what Biden was saying here. And what is Biden doing? It's like, hello, we have a whole country to talk about. We have a whole world to talk about. It doesn't all have to be through the lens of Biden to the extent that we're not even explaining the issues we're talking about anymore. It's all just how it relates to Biden. But it doesn't end there because then we have Nate Silver's segment. And in Nate Silver's segment, guess what? Now we're all talking about Donald Trump. And it's about Trump's prospects in the Republican primary in 2024. That's right. Now we're talking about 2024. So before we were talking about the midterms, which is one year away, now we're going to jump ahead to 2024. And now let's project about what's going to happen in 2024. Because that makes sense, right? We did such a good job talking about the midterms. That was all accurate. So now we're going to do that. Well, I'm not going to play that from Nate Silver, but I will play the panel discussion that goes on to discuss even more about this this breaking news topic of 2024. Here's Chris Christie actually calling the show out for this BS. We haven't had midterms yet. So I think all this stuff is, quite frankly, no offense to our show, wasted air. Because it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter right now. And this is the inevitable answer you get. Here's here's one way where it could matter, and I'll bring this to Jane. If Donald Trump stays out there, it could actually chill the field, freeze the field, prevent others from getting in. No, George, stop defending this garbage. (laughs) He's just committed to talking about this thing where people have outright been like, no, thanks. Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> and not only is 2024 so far away, but you are encouraging your viewers to like spend time and brain energy thinking about 2024 when 2022 hasn't even happened yet. Right. It's like these are the expectations that you have for your viewers. Like these are unreasonable. <laughs> It's it's wasted air. Exactly what Chris Christie said here. I am 100% agree with Chris Christie. Someone should clip that. It happens sometimes. I never say that. So I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. See, this is all structured like a five paragraph essay, right? I did the introduction and I uh-huh. made my points and now I'm going to summarize. So where did the show go wrong? Let's think about this. All right. And in thinking about it, I think they did a few things. First of all, They asked tough questions only when it was a hot political topic, which is the Fauci example I mentioned. They assumed that elections and events now could predict elections in years to come, as if that actually matters, which our own human experience should show us is BS. They asked political partisan commentators to comment almost exclusively on partisan issues, creating on-screen friction, but zero insight, zero surprise, and zero value. The questions aren't even interesting. They're often, as we said, yes or no questions, like the one George thought was so good he asked it twice. And they failed to explain complicated topics that they wanted to discuss. These are things, luckily, that this week's P 
peer shows, the other shows that we cover, did way better at. So now we're going to take a little tour of good things, right? Wow, good job, Brendan. Yes. First of all, here's some examples of bringing in stories from around the world, like the China story we talked about, the Taiwan story, but with much better and more meaningful context. This is an example from Face the Nation, where there was a brief report. This is a reporter's package at the beginning of the show looking at COVID. And the reporter's voice you'll hear filing that package is Elizabeth Palmer. Russia, the giant of the region, is seeing a record number of deaths day after day. In the provincial city of Vologda, burials have doubled. And with winter looming, hospitals are struggling. Even in the capital, Moscow, there is alarm. President Putin announced a week of what he called non-working days. They start at the end of this month. The problem clear across Eastern Europe is low vaccination rates. The Soviet past, followed by decades of poor and corrupt government, means no one trusts authority, with lethal consequences. That was 39 seconds long. What a, an amazing tour of the situation that is going on there, full of context and bringing it back to help people understand what's causing it. Just an excellent, excellent example. And not the only one on this week's episode of Face the Nation, because at the end of the show... They do something very similar, talking about the state of Afghanistan right now. Here's a few seconds of that. Under Taliban rule, a humanitarian crisis is growing inside of Afghanistan. The UN reports 97% of households could be living below the poverty line by the middle of next year. MTS Tayyip has been reporting in Kabul, documenting the state of the country following the U.S. withdrawal. One of the Taliban's first acts after seizing Kabul was to come here to the green zone and to paint their flag on this glass wall outside of what now was the U.S. Embassy to make it clear they're now in control. But so much across Afghanistan is already spiraling out of control. The United Nations is warning at least one million children will die from malnutrition without urgent humanitarian assistance like six-month-old Sophia. Her father, Baba Shreen, tells us he's helpless. Kabul is a city I know well. I first started coming here over a decade ago, but never have I seen it so desperate. So that's just a minute long, but we learn so much about what is going on there. The number of people going into poverty, the number of children who face literally death. We get an image of Kabul and a sense of what's going on with the Taliban painting their flag on what was the U.S. Embassy. And we get a personal story from the reporter saying, look, I've been here for a decade. I've been coming here and I've never seen it so desperate. All that in one minute. That is a valuable use of time. That is what you could do if you were not wasting air, as Christie said. Here's another example. This is an example from State of the Union, where Jake Tapper asks tough and relevant questions to Speaker Nancy Pelosi related to paying for the infrastructure bill. And then he actually took that question and handed it to another relevant booking on the show, Janet Yellen, U.S. Treasury Secretary, and asked her about that pay for. And this is, as you were mentioning, Naomi, the topic of the wealth tax. You just heard 
Uh, Speaker Pelosi, she floated some new ways to pay for this bill, such as a wealth tax, because it does appear that the plans to raise the corporate tax rate and raising the tax rate for, for top wage earners are out. With those off the table, can you still guarantee that this pill, bill is going to be paid for? Um, as the speaker noted, we have a variety of different ways um, to raise revenue, and all in all, um, it, it should be relatively straightforward to raise the revenue necessary to pay for this bill. Um, it, the final package, exactly what's in and out, uh, hasn't been decided that's being negotiated now. Do you think that a wealth tax will be part of it? And can you explain what that would look like? Well, um, I think what's under consideration is a proposal that uh, Senator Wyden and the Senate Finance Committee have been looking at that would um, impose um, a tax on unrealized capital gains um, on liquid assets held by extremely wealthy individuals, billionaires. Um, I wouldn't call that a wealth tax, but um, it would help get at uh, capital gains, which um, are an extraordinarily large part of the incomes of the wealthiest individuals. And uh, right now, uh, escape taxation uh, until they're realized and often they're unrealized and at death uh, benefit from a so-called step up of basis. So it's not a wealth tax, but um, a tax on unrealized capital gains of exceptionally wealthy individuals. It's not a wealth tax. It's just an tax on extraordinarily wealthy individuals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you boiled that down for people to understand. <laughs> Just repeat that over and oh over. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's for capital gains that are unrealized until the death benefit from so-called step-up of basis, as we all understand <laughs> of here. Of course. Yes. So Tapper asked a good, meaningful question. He had asked a tough question earlier. This answer we can rate as probably a thumbs down. I think it's kind of interesting the extent to which Yellen seems to really lean in to complicated financial jargon in her answer. And I almost feel like it's so bad that this must be must be like her strategy to make it seem so complicated that people are like, oh well, I that don't understand that. I don't think that don't has think to do with to me. me. I, yeah. I don't think that applies to me. I don't know half the words she's saying. I just file my taxes through TurboTax. So I don't think this is going to be a big deal for me. All right. Final example here that is the counterexample to this week and what they covered. And this is probably one of the most important things. I felt like this could almost be its own segment. And that is inviting discussion of things that are deeper than just what the politicians are doing, whether they're up or down, or how they're going to like fare in this election versus that election, or how it's relevant to Joe Biden, but actual discussion of policies and issues, and going deeper on those issues even, by inviting discussion of the alternative. I want to introduce that term here on Polylog. We've talked about it a little bit, but I think it's worth underscoring. Discussion of the alternative, something that is an alternative 
to a policy option or a policy success, to help us understand the success of a policy by saying, oh, well, what, what's an alternative example of this? Or what would have happened if we hadn't done this, right? So the first example I want to introduce is one that came up in the discussion that Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan had with Gita Gopinath. She is from the International Monetary Fund. She's chief economist there. And this was in talking about the human infrastructure bill. Take a listen and in particular, listen for the alternative. In this case, an example of what other countries do as it relates to one of these policies. We want to continue our conversation with Gita Gopinath, chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Before the break, you were talking about uh, the rest of the world. The most developed economies in the world have 12 weeks of paid leave. The United States does not. And in fact, President Biden won't be able to deliver on that. His compromise has been four weeks of paid leave in the latest version of this spending bill. Uh, Is it safe to say that will have a negative impact on economic growth and your projections? Margaret, we need to bring back all the women who've left the labor force and return back to the market to get a full recovery. And uh, family paid leave absolutely helps in that dimension. Now, four weeks is better than zero, so I think that that is certainly progress made. But again, what we are seeing around the world is we are seeing labor markets that are recovering much more slowly than output. And in the U.S., while we're seeing men come back much faster, women are taking longer for that to happen. So we need to pay very close attention to making sure that women is attractive for women to return to the workforce. And in a previous instance of this discussion, Gita Gopinath had mentioned that 12 weeks is consistent with the standards across OECD countries, that is, which is most developed countries that we compare ourselves to, and that is consistent with the federal workforce. Federal workers in the United States get 12 weeks of paid family leave. So to have four, it's really an odd outlier. But that's a discussion of the alternative, right? Yeah, and I think it's an interesting person to ask about how does this proposal compare to what is needed in this country, what is needed for this economy, and in comparison to our peer nations. And so many times when we only talk to, you know, our own congressional representatives, it's very easy not to talk. I mean, unless you're Sanders, who likes to say that we're all the only developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks about alternatives, you know, but other than him, there isn't anybody else that comes to mind that consistently underscores you know the comparison to to other countries yeah absolutely which you know it's it's kind of strange if you think about you know all of these climate components around the bill because there's all this pressure for biden to have something to talk about when he goes to glasgow i think it's in a couple weeks or something and that's part of the big push of of figuring out what the plan could look like this week because he can't go there empty-handed but why? Like, why does he have to go there with a proposal in place? Maybe because other countries are doing more than us. Maybe because they've already, you know, gotten programs in place a few years ago or whatever. Like, there's all this talk about, like, we can't look like a fool when he goes meets with other countries about climate change. But we don't talk about why and right. what we'd have to do to not look foolish. And what those other countries are doing. Exactly. Right? That's that's the comparison. Right. That's what I'm that's what I'm trying exactly. to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to close this whole segment out with a final alternative that I thought was really insightful that also came up on Face the Nation. And that is an alternative that I haven't seen a lot of people 
bring up in all the discussions we've had over the last few months about Afghanistan. So Margaret Brennan had this extraordinary conversation with the former ambassador to Afghanistan, who helped engineer the framework that Trump negotiated with the Taliban for the U.S. withdrawal, and then continued on in the Biden administration working through that process. And he recently resigned, and she had this conversation with him, and she brought tons of really tough questions. It was a tough interview. It almost felt like a debate where Brennan was saying, you guys failed in this, 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 this way. Explain yourself, you know? Very engaging. I highly recommend listening to the whole thing. But at the end here, Ambassador Khalilzad suggests an alternative to the U.S. withdrawal that is not the alternative we're used to hearing. What we're used to hearing is the alternative of a really good withdrawal, what we would have expected. But he brings it back and brings the history back of the last withdrawal that happened in Afghanistan back in the time of the Soviet Union. Take a listen to this closing. So this wasn't an orderly withdrawal. 13 Americans Nobody, died. nobody, uh, I would, I'm not saying it was an orderly withdrawal. This was an ugly uh, fi- final phase, no doubt about it. It could have been a lot worse. It could be a lot worse. The Talibs did help with the withdrawal. General McKenzie would tell you they did everything we asked them to do during that final phase. I was on the phone with them constantly, push this, uh, close this road, allow these uh, uh, buses. It could have been a lot worse. Kabul could have been destroyed. Street to street fighting could have occurred. I went to Afghanistan after 30 plus years after the Soviet withdrawal and what happened. Everywhere you looked, there was destruction, like uh, some German city after World War II. This could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. It can still be a lot worse, or it can get better. But the choice is now mostly theirs, Afghans. Rumi, the great Afghan born in Balkh, said, you can walk with people, you cannot walk for them. Ambassador, thank you for your time. So I don't think any of the discussions on this week ended with a quote of of any famous poets whatsoever. So that's a ding against them. If you don't end with a famous poet, you're going to lose a a rating, I think, here or there. But in all honesty, this is an incredible discussion and a meaningful discussion. And you walk away from it understanding more about the world and about the U.S.'s place in it and about our future. And I want to point out that like, this isn't how the Afghan segment end. It just happened to be how we ended talking about it today on Polylogue. But following this interview, Brennan had that segment talking about the humanitarian crisis that we've left in our wake in Afghanistan. That like, okay, we can say that we can't walk for them. But at the same time, when you see what's left, you have to ask the question, what was our responsibility to help them transition into this new phase. And it seems like way more of a withdrawal than a transition to a new phase after so much, right? so much destruction. You know, it almost reminds me of like, if you've ever been in a raft and someone who's rather heavy gets into that raft, disrupts everyone else in the raft because they've just jumped into this raft and the whole raft is leaning in their direction and then they jump out of the raft right? They withdraw from the raft. All those people are suddenly going to be lunged in different directions, right? Sometimes even lunged out of the raft as well because of 
the gravity of that person, the weight of that person now leaving. They left a huge impact while they were there, and then their absence leaves a huge impact. And to just say the withdrawal was about how we jumped out of the raft is not really recognizing the impact of right, that jump. Right, right. The, the presence that you had there while you were there, right. what you accomplished, what you didn't, is all the more telling when all people have is your absence. Right. And the, you know, shitty withdrawal. Right. And so much focus of the discussion of, of the withdrawal was about that withdrawal. It was like talking through, you know, in this raft analogy, how do you get into the water? And what's the safest way? And, you know, how do you get off the boat? With like no discussion of, did you make sure the other people in the boat were properly braced for the fact that you were getting out? Did you give them flotation devices if they get thrown out? Like, are you making sure there's enough food in there for them now that you're leaving with your pack? Like very little discussion of that. And the structure of the show, you know, nowhere does the show say the U.S. should be the one to help these people in Afghanistan, like in that closing segment, but they don't have to. Like people can make their own conclusions and we can draw our own assessments as I'm kind of making here after having seen it. But that's the power of a Sunday show that is so carefully crafted with segments that build on each other. Well, and I mean, I think that's the difference of talking about breaking news that's happening this week. Sometimes you do have to kind of focus on like, how are you getting Americans and permanent residents out of Afghanistan that want to get out and and whatever. But when the story, when the immediacy wanes, what's your commitment to that story, I think is a whole other piece. And I don't know, I mean, maybe this week with Martha Raddatz, when she's interviewed certain generals, but for the most part, people aren't doing what Margaret Brennan is doing here. That deeper analysis, that reflection. Yeah, Margaret Brennan and the whole show. I mean, the show is doing something extraordinary and they are stepping up and they are going beyond what we ever conceived the Sunday shows were back when we started Polylog. That's fair. I think that's 100% accurate. It is extremely impressive and there's just so much insight and value that someone would get out of Face the Nation. And I feel like this week is on like that sinking ship of the old way where... The Sunday shows were just a place for political partisan spin masters to come on and talk about the latest who's it's up, who's down. It's the sports center of politics. That's yeah. all they're trying to be on Sunday. Right. You know, I used to read news magazines all the time when I was growing up. Newsweek, Time. No one is surprised by that confession. And but yes. U.S. News and World Report. And <sighs> I think it was U.S. News and World Report that had a little box, a little infographic box every week. And someone can write in and correct me if I'm wrong about this. But I'm pretty sure they had this infographic box. And in it, they would just quickly assess where different political actors were. And they would literally, I guess, probably taking from the stock market idea of like what stock is going up and what stock is going down. They'd give like, you know, an arrow pointing like, oh, Biden, he's up or he's down. His stock is up or down this week. And that's what it seems like this week is just obsessed with. And not only that, they're trying to predict what the stock is going to be doing in a year or four years from now. And it's just mind-numbingly useless. It's just useless. Sure, you can note it, but just note it. Don't devote your whole show to it. Don't have segment after segment about it. And then talk about it on your panel. Oh my gosh. It is night and day with what we see on some of these other shows. Luckily. Luckily, some of these other shows are doing amazing work. That's it for me. I'm done talking.
Well, we were clearly frustrated by some shows and impressed and grateful for others. And that's, I feel like, as nice as we could be. Yep, absolutely. (laughs) Naomi, I know you have a dialogue challenge. I think for our dialogue challenge, Brendan, what might be interesting is to have a conversation of bad agendas, because I think that's what we're seeing here. Mm, Interesting. These agendas, in terms of this week and, you know, meet the press, they were never strong to begin with. Right. And so the conversations that lead from it are not very productive and not very helpful. Yeah, that's a good point. And so... You know, what's a meeting that you went to that the minute you saw the agenda, you're like, why am I here? What's a conference you went to that had so many interesting speakers or had, you know, interesting organizations invited? And you then you see the agenda and you're like, this is what we're talking about? Like, this is what you chose? Yeah. So much could be relieved by just better effort on a good agenda. Absolutely. We should call them out when they're, when they're trash. Well, that really resonates with me because I'm working on a big some other big project. And I spent so much time in preparation, so much time, so much more than I thought I would. But it's like, the more time I spend, I'm like, no, I'm really figuring this out. If I had, if I had started before, if I didn't have such a good agenda, one might say, you'd be lost in the middle. Or what I produced would not be good. Right. Like it wouldn't matter how good I was at executing the agenda. If the agenda is not good, It's not going to be great, you know? Exactly. Great one. I love that one. I love a good agenda. If you want to share a good agenda, a bad agenda with us. We always have an agenda. We're looking at our Polylog agenda, October 24, 2021 document. We always have an agenda. (laughs) There's a lot of podcasts that don't have agendas. Yeah. There's a lot of things that have been influenced by Brendan in the making of this show. But the agenda, I live and die by. (laughs) We will always have an agenda. But if you have agenda likes preferences desires or you went to a conference and it was really bad like i want to hear all those stories you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com you can tweet at me at soda naomi underscore you can tweet at me at b Steidel, and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast thanks everyone and we'll talk with you next week bye bye